These are not true orphans. They're orphans of poverty. They're orphans because their moms feel like, okay, if the orphanage can take care of them, then they will be well. Welcome back. This is Colombian Influence, a podcast where we talk about adoption using our own experiences and um, just kind of wanting to mainstream the conversation of adoption. So we are so excited to have another guest today. Risa, do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yes. So we're really excited. Um, First of all, we're just uh, in the midst of Black History Month, so we're trying to do our part as uh, Colombian adoptees to introduce um, the conversation of transracial adoptees and everything. So earlier this month, uh, the last interview we had was with Mariah, and um, she is um, a black adoptee adopted by white parents. So today we're going to kind of flip the script a little bit and talk to Kate Lundquist. Uh, She was featured in some local news here in the Twin Cities uh, shortly after the um, murder of George Floyd in the spring, I think that was late May. So basically it was shortly after she was featured in the news. Uh, she basically moved her entire family from Roseau, Minnesota, which is way up north by the Canadian border. So she adopted two boys from Haiti. Uh, we're going to get more details as to how that all went down, um, when they were adopted, how old, etc. But she ended up shortly after... Um, checking out the George Floyd Memorial, moving her whole family from Roseau, Minnesota to Brooklyn Park. So that's a really diverse area. So that was really the main goal for them. So we're going to be interviewing Kate Lundquist. Uh, she, like we said, we're kind of flipping the script and talking to uh, the like Caucasian parent uh, who has adopted black children, um, having also like a multiracial family since she did have some children uh, that are biological prior uh, to adopting the two boys from Haiti. Um, but now they're in a totally different environment. So we're going to talk to her today about the choices, um, as to why, how growing up or having those kids grow up in the Northern part of the state was, you know, something that they wanted to move away from and just diving into a lot of that. So we're really excited to talk to Kate today. All right. Well, we are so happy to be joined today by Kate Lindquist. Uh, we mentioned in our intro today that um, she was featured in some local news uh, just regarding her family and her experience with having a transracial adoptees. So welcome, Kate. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, let's just uh, dive into some of our questions Um we interviewed a adoptee from a transracial um, adoptee point of view earlier this month. So we're kind of just flipping the script here, talking to the parent in the same situation. So um, I guess before we uh, just get started with like the, you know, deep questions and everything, um, we would love to just kind of know some things about you and your family, um, names of folks, if you're comfortable with, uh, you know, sharing that as well as uh, ages and all of that. I'm married to Jacob. We have been married for, I think, 17 years. I'm starting to lose track. We were pretty young when we got married, still in college. Our oldest daughter is 14. Her name is Addie. Then we have Charlotte, who's 11. Nelson, who's 11. Ridge is 9. Mackie is 9. And then we've got little baby Vera Beth. And she's, I'll always call her a little baby, but she's 2. So... That's our family, and I was born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota, went to college in Bemidji, 
after that, I, I mean, I never thought I would live anywhere smaller than Bemidji, but, um, Jake, long story short, Jacob and I ended up more North and more rural in Roseau, Minnesota. And we ended up staying there for 16 years. So, and now we live in the Minneapolis area, uh, in Brooklyn park. Glad to have you as awesome. a neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm very thankful. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool being down here. So, you have two kids adopted from Haiti. Like, so what yes. kind of brought you to adoption? Well, that's, it's kind of, it was never anything we planned on. Um, never. I've always appreciated adoption stories and, you know, admired. I don't know if admired is the right word, but been inspired by whatever ways families come together. When, with that being said, I was, uh, and we could talk about this later is there was a lot of things I was innocently ignorant about as well. But for us, um, it came after the loss of a pregnancy. Actually, we had, we had been in Haiti on a mission trip, um, and visited and stayed at an orphanage for five or six days. And then shortly after that experience, I lost a pregnancy and I, I just, we had never struggled to conceive or hold a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I, that was, uh, you know, for anybody that would be really devastating. And, and somebody said, well, you can have another baby Kate. And I was like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm supposed to. And at that time of my adulthood and journey and all of this, I really thought I can't stop thinking about those kids in Haiti. And, um, I said, if they need a mom and I so desperately want to be a mother, perhaps we need to explore this option more. Maybe there's something I can do. Now, when we had been in Haiti, um, you know, volunteering, we, there was a little boy, Mackie, he was just turning one year old and there was some type, it felt like some type of connection there. And I, my husband had made a joke about, Oh, what if, you know, he could be ours. Mm -hmm. I said, honey, I would, I would, you know, I would do it. So don't joke about that. Well, ultimately we ended up asking the orphanage director at the time about the possibility of adoption. And in Haiti, we were not old enough. We had not been married long enough and we had too many biological children. We literally did not meet any of the requirements to adopt. Plus they had been pretty much shut down for a while. Um, the, so it was like, there was no question that this was not going to happen. So we're just going to, all right, well, that answers that. And we went home after the pregnancy loss. We, I just had this strong pull and we ended up, I just, we ended up saying, well, let's try again about adoption and we'll just keep moving forward until the doors close. And all those closed doors I had talked about previously, they just kept on bursting open and open and open. And there were a lot of, and everything just fell into place. And uh, a year and a half later, we not only brought Mackie home, but Nelson too. And um, yeah, so, and to be super honest with you, you know, what led us to adoption was, um, we thought we were doing something very helpful. We thought we were doing like, if these kids need us, we can come in and save the day. We want to be parents. 
they need parents. Let's, let's do this. Like we can, you know, it, it felt like in a sense doing something brave and heroic at the time I would have said, like, we're just trying to help things like that. Mm So, and we can get into that more later too, if you'd like, but looking back and we wanted to, we wanted to help kids who we thought needed help, but it ends up being such a bigger story than that, I think. And, and it's so much more complicated than that. And there are Mm -hmm. so many layers. And so at that time, I simply just thought love is enough. I will help these children. We will be a bigger family and, um, and it's going to be happily ever after. And so since then, it's been a lot of growing up on my part, a lot of maturity, becoming humble and, um, learning a lot of lessons that were hard to hear. So, so yeah, I'm at a different place now. For sure. Wow. It's just Mm -hmm crazy how it comes together so fast for you. And you didn't really have any of those resources either just because you didn't even know what you were getting yourself into. Right. Right. And just considering the timeline then, since uh, they are 11 and nine now, how old were they when they were adopted? Sure. They came, they came home. Has it been six, six years now? So six years ago, and it was in six years ago, November, they came home and, they were five and a half and almost three. So, Got it. yeah. Okay, so that's a little bit different than ours. We were babies, three months. So kind of just that growth as a child who already understands, it's a little bit more difficult too, I would assume. Yeah, you know, it's my during that mission trip down there that I went on, it, we landed and I was – completely shell-shocked by what I saw. I did not, I was so uncultured. I had no idea what it would be like to land in a plane and get step out into a country like Haiti, where I kind of thought I would leave the airport and it would just be like MSP. There'd be paved roads and, you know, order and (laughs) things like that. And Haiti was entirely different. And, and it is an, it is a black country. And here I was, this blue eyed, red-haired girl, you know, stepping off so naive and the poverty and the amount of people and the dust and the roads and the traffic and everything. Mm-hmm. I was extremely, I was very overwhelmed. Um, I was, I had been so excited to be there and I was overwhelmed and it, and the, and the, the thought of children kind of lining up in cribs, that was very heavy on me. Mm. It all just kind of, and I just remember crying that first night and saying, Jacob, I'm never coming back. I want to get out of here. This is too much. Mm. Well, when we, we ended up loving our experience there very much. And, um, once we started pursuing the adoption, I went back every few months and I fell more in love with Haiti Mm. every time. Mm. And I feel like every time I went back, I fell in love with the people and started learning more and more about the realities of um, just what it is like in Haiti and the realities of what it might be like for a mother in Haiti Mm -hmm. to have a pregnancy and what that might mean. And that started to become very heavy on me instead of, Mm. I feel like the, the, the idea in my mind was, you know, the seed that was planted was 
you as a, an American can help Haiti by adopting their children. And what feels very heavy to me now is, did I help or did I hurt? And that, that's heavy. And people say, no, Kate, you did the right thing. You know, no, I think I can still say I love my children very much and I um, love Haiti. I'm, I, I'm glad we adopted, yet I'm critical of a lot of things that I learned and saw and experienced. And so in falling in love with Haiti, I feel like I ended up learning a lot more. My perspective was this mom from America was going to come help. And I ended up finding out, oh, there were a hundred other ways I could have actually helped. And I chose, mm. the one, I chose the one that best served me. I loved these boys. I wanted them home in my house. This was something that I told everybody I knew that we were going to do. And they were cheering me on, cheering up my husband and me on supporting us, giving us money, you know, go get those kids. They just, you deserve them. They deserve you like, yay. I, you guys probably see it all the time. Mm -hmm. Adoptive parents get celebrated in a way that I think can be um, a little triggering to adoptees. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, well, I would say, yes, I do know that because I've seen it being said. And um, yeah, I just, Kate, you know, we see it in adoptive parents. They say, you know, Kate, you're such a hero for adopting. And I'm like, I think I would never have admitted that, but there is a part in us that loves being, pointed out or recognized and like, Oh, I'm doing something wonderful. I, I will always be so thankful for the transracial adoptees in different support groups who have said the hard things to white parents who mm -hmm. have said, can you please consider that maybe there are, like I said, a hundred other things you could have done. So now when people say, Kate, should we adopt? I, I think I'm so inspired by your story. I'd like to adopt. I'm like, can we talk about maybe orphan prevention first and then see, you know, like, so we love to support a uh, ministry uh, it's called Heartline Ministries and um, Heart, Heartline Maternity Center in Haiti, because what they do is they work with mothers who are pregnant and then and then work with them right where they're at. They um, provide prenatal care, education, birth services, birth support, and then child development and child care classes for six months, breastfeeding support, so that these moms can learn that you are enough. You can be a great mother, and um, you can be healthy, and you can't, you know, here's, here's resources for you instead of, hey, I know this is hard, so there's an orphanage over there. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think, of course, there's orphans that need parents, but in so many circumstances, I, I feel a weight about, a heaviness about the fact that with the proper resources, mothers could actually be able to stay unified with family. Yeah. So kind of tying into one thing that you had mentioned to us via email just before we started, as well as a question from a listener, um, especially just how this is kind of unfolded, it seems like over the course of time that you've, um, you know, had, had your children in your home and like just been able to look at it from a different lens. Uh, you had mentioned that you carry a lot of guilt and shame about different things that you would have considered and done differently. 
also kind of tying into, like I said, we had a, um, a listener question, just how do you stay away from that white savior complex? I asked another mom once, I said, you know, what led you to adoption? And she said, white saviorism. And we just laughed. So that term does not offend me at all. Um, mm. But it does, that is pretty triggering to some people. And, and it's a term that, that we have to admit, there's a lot of that. Oh, and yeah. white people, white people and the relationship to minority cultures and minority races has a whole lot of saviorism in it all of the time. We yeah. can start back to the mission trip that I did to Haiti. What on earth? I mean, that cost probably what $1,500 for me to go. What did I really do there? I, I came in, I loved on kids, you know, in my mind, they need that hug. They need those snuggles. Nobody else is available to give it to them. I fed them. I took pictures with them. Mm. And then I left. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and I told my church, oh, I saw this and I saw that. Just our presence there. We, we sang worship music with them. I paid all that money to basically bring my whiteness to them, mm -hmm. take pictures with them and make others believe that I was helping. Mm -hmm. Again, I will get pushback on it's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and as I continued to go there and see, as I started going there then as a mom every few months and seeing these visitors cycle in and out of orphanages, it's much more of a tourism thing. Oh, yeah. It's a tourism. Yeah. They're painting walls that don't need to be painted. Yeah. They're playing with kids and building relationships and then leaving mm -hmm. and never coming back. They're not... Mm -hmm. All of that money that we spend to visit could be helping families stay together. So, oh man, yeah. I just I'm I'm when I was in it, I was defensive. When I was the person going on the trip, when I was the white mom adopting black babies, I would say, "But but we want to help. What? Why are you questioning my intention? I want to help." Well, who is that centered on? That was centered on me. Sure, I want to help people. Yeah. Yes, there's a little bit of a high there that white people get. And and that and then it's a it's a proximity to other cultures and other races that we can see like it's almost like a see, we're not racist. We we hold black babies. So many things that start to unpeel as you you know, I, there's just so many layers to the story. So basically where adoption starts, you go into adoption support groups for that country and you say, okay, God put it on my heart to adopt. I just have such a heart for Haiti. God led us there. And you're met with all this community who validates that thought. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then everybody kind of, uh, has sorrow together and you know as far as like oh I love these babies I just want to help you know how do I get so everybody kind of supports their way through it together um I'm so sad I'm missing my children there's just lots of me 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 and that's totally there's so much normalcy and like that would be to be expected you know but again and then um hey everybody celebrate we get our bait we, we have our kids yay and then what I noticed a severe pattern of was 
oh, darn, my family is racist. Oh, man, feel bad for me because my neighbor is racist. Mm. And, um, oh, like, pity me because uh, my kid is the only black boy at school or whatever. What should we do about it? And, and you know, not knowing how to take care of hair or skin or whatever it may be. Mm. But you just see this pattern of, like, these moms and parents are never happy in a sense. It's like, there's always something to be upset about. Like I'm so miserable waiting for my child to get home. Well, now I'm still miserable that the, and now that they're here oh, and wow. parenting, parenting is hard and it's, and it's hard to have a child with trauma. That's another big mm. thing. They, mm. they think they're helping. We think that we're serving these children powerfully. And the truth is so much is that we're ignoring the trauma of, I, it doesn't matter that they were in an orphanage. That's all they knew. Yeah. And it just because they were in an orphanage in a sense, hey, there's some, I mean, no orphanage is ideal. That's not the way children are designed to be raised. Mm-hmm. But mm. It doesn't mean that my children weren't secure and had joy there. So I took them from everything they've known. So whatever environment. So they even say, like, even if you guys were adopted at three months Mm -hmm. old, Mm -hmm. you guys leaving as infants uh, while your brains are developing, there may be things there that you experience trauma. Mm -hmm. And I just see parents ignoring that a lot. Like, well, no, my kids should be grateful. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't fix that their brains and their hearts might have things that they need to work through or that something might be, um, yeah, hard for them. Uh, Also, it's like hardwired into their, like their brain, their heart, their soul, like all of that Mm -hmm. just get erased. Yes. And it shows up in so many different ways. And, uh, I think, I think parents have an idea of what they think it'll look like and they're not prepared enough, whether it's like the system that fails the parents too. Mm -hmm. Like nobody told me about, Mm -hmm. we did in order to adapt your whole history, everything. I mean, you have to go through so much paperwork and interviews and all that and get letters of recommendation nobody is asked do you think this couple is equipped to handle trauma or you know child with a trauma background or um or wow. interracial parenting like tell it nobody said kate tell us what you know about what it would be like to parent a black child in america nobody asks those things um so i'm just i'm so thankful our children are happy you know, in all relative terms, like where our family is good and strong. I'm not, I don't regret adopting. I just wish if I like, I just, um, I see so many things that I become, that I've become critical of not only myself, but in the entire system that, and now at this point in my life, I'm just trying to navigate. How can I help? How can I teach? How can I how can I move forward? And namely, one of the things then besides the adopting, like the groups that I was in for like white parents adopting, I moved, I moved to transracial adoption groups. And I'm not sure if you guys are in them at all. There's a couple that I followed have been in for years. 
And the instructions are upon entering, white people may not talk, may not comment, may not type unless you've listened for X amount of time. Mm -hmm. And just those boundaries make white people uncomfortable. We just speak to be heard and we don't sit and listen to truths that are hard. And when you are in those groups, they tell you over and over again what it's like to be a transracial adoptee. It is their truth. And so often people like me will come in and say, oh, but you're wrong. No, stop it. (laughs) So um, the transracial adoptee voices are considered the privileged voices in that group. They hold the power and it's a beautiful thing in my eyes. And it is, they don't beat around the bush. They say what it's like. And there's a lot of hurt and pain there. And I tried really hard. I did. I, I spent a lot of time sitting in my own discomfort to hear what they had to say. And the one thing that they said often was, do not raise your black children in white spaces. Mm. I just went, well, okay, I'm hearing them. I will listen. But if they only knew my little town, everybody's so nice. Well, I'm a white woman. Of course, everybody's nice to me, you know, and they're nice to me and they support it. So many supported the adoption, but what I started to notice unraveling over the years was it was like I was almost undercover. I was a white woman in a white environment, and so therefore people would kind of let their biases and racism be on display mm-hmm. when they didn't realize how offensive it was. And I started picking up on perhaps microaggressions or biases that most people wouldn't be able to recognize when my boys were young, cute orphans, Mm -hmm. people were supportive, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. those same people, thanks to social media or church or whatever, I started to see if those black bodies were men jogging down a street or Mm -hmm. men walking into a store or a boy playing at a park Mm -hmm. with a stick that the love wasn't the same. And I was getting increasingly frustrated that people around me couldn't see the injustice. And then George Floyd died. And I feel like that exposed everything, Mm -hmm. exposed everything. And, and the path became clear after that, much more clear. I was finally able to let go of that last thing I was holding on to. I, it didn't matter how nice, it didn't matter how much my, neighbors or community there nothing could change the fact that my boys were the only some of the only people of color in that entire space and that's not okay I finally understood it took me a long time but it also took me um to visit after the George Floyd Memorial well I was gonna say and as your boys get older more of those concerns of those you know people just getting more worried on those little situations. It's just, it's mind blowing sometimes on how unfair it is. Yes, absolutely. Um, so after George Floyd died, I I became very increasingly observant of how the social media community handled that. Mm -hmm. I noticed how churches prayed about that. It was 
pray about the people affected by riots, but it would say nothing about pray about racial injustice in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed people saying, well, he was criminal. He should, you know, all these things of not seeing the injustice there, not understanding the deep systemic, uh, just the huge injustice in this and the, you know, it just exposed so much and people chose not to see it. I saw what they said and it hurt and it made me realize that in my white space, if that were to happen to my children, what people would respond like. And that was alarming to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, you know, what if it's in school and they become come wrongly accused and they end up in the principal's office, what biases are going to show up that, you know, make my kids guilty just by the way they look. I just, what biases will present themselves if they're coming out against George Floyd and the entire black community, that's, that includes my children. Mm-hmm. And I've always been justice minded. I want to seek truth and I want to seek the right thing. Unfortunately, everybody's right thing is so different, but what I saw on social media in response to George Floyd really bothered me. And I was just coming off of being treated for breast cancer and all this stuff. And what breast cancer did for me was kind of make me appreciate every day and give me this attitude of you only live once. And I know, and I, we, you know, we had COVID going on in the whole bit and I had surgery coming up. I had to, um, I had to quarantine before I could do the surgery. And I just know in my gut, I wanted to be where George Floyd had been. I wanted to see what was happening for my own eyes because I was seeing it happen through the eyes of everybody else and their opinions. I wanted to see the truth. And I had this small window of opportunity before I had to quarantine for a surgery. I went, I'm leaving. I'm taking my kids and I'm going down there. And um, we drove down. So I took my four middle children So Charlotte, Nelson, Ridge, and Mackie. And, you know, keep in mind, it was six hours drive south. We had only lived in a very rural environment. It's not like we hadn't been to the cities. And I've traveled the world with my work. But I, to drive, to take them into Minneapolis was such a special and eye-opening experience for all of them. They immediately took note of the graffiti. And so we talked a lot about that. And that's where it finally hit me as a mom, like, wow, I hear I have a very valuable teaching opportunity for my children. So I just think, you know, I talked about why would people do graffiti? Why would they write on walls? And those were the questions they were asking me. And I just said, you know, I think when people aren't feeling heard, nobody will listen. People feel that that's how they can express themselves. So you'll see a lot of things. And then it was when they asked mom, why does it say I can't breathe on that wall? And that was when I finally had the courage. I was very scared to talk to them about George Floyd, but I told them, I said, well, that's what George Floyd said. Mm. He said, mama, he called for his mom and he said, I cannot breathe. And that's, that's when it hit me, the, the severe reality of what had just happened in our state and in Minneapolis and um and that was just as we were driving up and as we drove up we 
I hadn't even realized that his memorial was on that day. We were just going to go pay respects at the place where he had died. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the day of his memorial. And we pulled up and Al Sharpton was on the speakers. You know, we could hear the funeral happening. And we were met with this huge sea of people and community like dishing out food and um, caters and restaurants serving and you know basically like little Walgreens set up all over the place donations had poured in so here we are with my children with all these people who felt the heaviness too and who wanted to be there to celebrate to mourn to have solidarity and I don't know what it is so hard to explain, but for one of the first times in my whole life, I felt like I had gone somewhere and, and something was ignited in me. It was like a instinctual, like I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. Like this feels safe. And it's, you know, the way people had been talking and showing on social media was like riots and, and danger. Yes. Some of those things did happen for a short time, but the reality was that Minneapolis was like coming together and like mourning this and lamenting this. And, and that's when I came is about a week after that, after the death and, and then experiencing that for a day with, with Minneapolis was so powerful. And to me, it was like, I found my people. (laughs) You know, it was like, I had been misplaced. I think for, for many years, I've wondered, did God put me in the wrong town? Am I in the wrong body? Did I, was I supposed to live in a different state? Like, I just don't feel like I fit in. And then I got amongst those people, the people of Minneapolis who showed up for George Floyd. And I just felt like, Oh, this feels like home. And this feels like I'm the minority here. I'm never the minority. Never. This is how my kids live. This is how Nelson and Mackie live every day as the only, you know, and it's, and I just realized, and I'm looking at them, I'm like, whoa, it's like they're camouflage. Like they, what an opportunity for them. And that's when I said, Nelson, why don't you go walk around? Like, why don't you just go? It, and it was this this wave that came over me like a mother bird, like pushing her baby out of the nest. I don't, like, go be with your people. You know, it felt like this um, almost a sacrificial, like, love. Like, I love you enough that I will go through the pain of having you leave me right now. And um, I don't know. It just, like, it was this very special, like, just go, just go. And, and that's the moment that I describe as him just blending in. Mm-hmm. And it felt beautiful he blended in like that had never happened before and that's again that feeling of like we're home like this is where we belong and uh yeah and the other notable moment about that was when I had my boys pose for a picture together or I was taking pictures of them like with graffiti and things to just like remember the trip and that was the first time I had seen Nelson Nelson, he posed like this with the fist and I was like wow kids learn so fast even my white son was like mom I want a black lives matter hat and I was like okay and you guys this is so crazy because I found myself saying well you're not I wanted I almost said you're not going to want to wear that back home like in Roseau 
because that that that's yeah. how I've lived my whole life kind of live small like you don't want to offend anybody you don't want to yeah. make mm-hmm. anybody uncomfortable and I just stopped myself my white wow. son was excited about Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter he felt a heart it was like I described my being at the George Floyd Memorial those couple of days it was like seeing my kids grow empathy and compassion how often do we get to do that as a mom like they it was like seeing it all through the eyes of a child and it was priceless so we bought this orange black lives matter hat and he wore that so proudly it was his favorite thing and i just thought how beautiful like he's so untainted by the world right now he's so empathetic and open-minded it just felt it felt right and then to then we had to drive home. We had to drive away. And it just, I, I, it was a, a powerful time. We can only imagine wow. being there in the area, you know, with all those people. It's yeah. so powerful. Like you really don't even know how to feel. I know I visited it twice and each time I, you just, you feel overwhelmed with all the support of the community and the yeah. love and joy. It's nothing like they showed on TV. I mean, right. the riots and things, of course, are tough, but that's just a way of trying to get their voices heard, honestly. I mean, it, it's so powerful. So I can yeah. imagine going back to this enclosed box is like almost suffocating. Yeah. It was just very hard to hear people make sweeping judgments. Yeah about something they knew nothing about. So then how long was it from after you guys made that visit that you like Mm -hmm. made the decision to move first of all, Mm -hmm. you know, and then did that and how long have you guys Mm -hmm. been in the area now? Yeah. So that was the beginning of June. I know I, I think I came home and I just said, Jacob, like, this is it. You know, we had been considering moving for years, but it was very hard for me emotionally, actually, to think about moving where we had raised our babies. It was all we knew. Um, But having that maternal experience of finding your perfect nest, I just really felt this pull. I got home. I said, Jake, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And so it didn't take long. I think by, so that was in June, in July, I know he had a job offer. We came down in August to look for houses and we were here by September. I mean, it just went fast. So Mm -hmm. we moved down here and when we were looking at houses, it was hard because we would say to our realtor or there was a housing development. We talked to a developer like, okay, well, all the bells and whistles of a house are fine, but is this a diverse neighborhood? We would, and they would say, we can't comment on that. And I was like, okay, I know you can't comment on it because, because people come and they want, they want a good neighborhood, which is code for white. You typically, yeah. uh, if, if to wow. say it real straight, yeah. I mean, think about the way parents talk about good schools Absolutely. or mm-hmm. good neighborhoods. What does that look like? What does that look like really? And so anyways, they're used to people coming and wanting to avoid the mm-hmm. diversity and Noah's saying, but no, we're actually, that's like a, that's something we have to have. I'm not going to move. That's why moving, I think, was underlying, like, so hard for me before, because the moves we had considered would have been culturally and race-wise a lateral move sure. or, mm-hmm. like, just not extreme enough. I was like, I want the most diverse 
place in Minnesota we can be that will fit our family. So like, so I heard Brooklyn Center and Brooklyn Park. So here we are in Brooklyn Park. Um, and, you know, they couldn't quite comment on neighborhood statistics. And so I've heard Brooklyn Park is that, I mean, white is not the dominant culture here. Mm-hmm. And we're having the time of our lives. Like, it's great. This was indeed that call here was home. It, it is home. And I just appreciate you know, not only the diversity, but it's it's integrated. We have neighbors from all different countries. Um, my kids' school, that was an important demographic, about 30% white, 30% Asian, 30% black. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's just a more, um, it's integrated. It's wonderful. My son, Nelson. So we talked about how, how I felt having him in the crowd where everybody was black. Now I get to being at home doing school because of COVID, I get to listen to him learn from his black teacher every day. Mm-hmm. That's something we didn't request that. It just happened. And he got a black male teacher. Oh. When, how else would I have had a person of influence for him otherwise? I think we moved in time so that they'll at least as they're discovering who they are and their identity, that um, they're amongst, uh, I don't know, a, a, a culture that will not only accept their diversity, accept their, their brown and black bodies, but celebrate them. Have you seen or how have you seen your kids and family grow since you made the move? I feel like we're here they're happy, but I don't know if my kids would be like, oh, wow. I'm, I, it's like they don't know what they were missing before, mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't know what better soil they're in for their own personal growth. It's like something only maybe an adult looking in would know, but I just think, like you said, like, like I saw him when, he was, when Nelson was in Minneapolis before, how he stood a little taller, mm-hmm. um, the way his face is when his teacher's talking to him, he, you know, his, his teacher's like, dude, you know, like he talks to him the way a black man would talk to a black child. Like, I got you. I got you. You know, it's just like, and I can't do that. I can't replicate that. So like to be able to provide them racial mirrors, huge, huge. So that said, going on with also just like your family dynamic in general, having a mixed family and having the fact that you do also have white Mm -hmm. children, Mm -hmm. how has like the conversation been and how do you basically talk about racism to your family and your partner and racial dynamics with having black kids being a white parent, being a mixed family? What does that conversation look like? Yeah, well... I can tell you that it's not something we ignore. Um, again, only saying be- that because I think people become critical when you talk about race often. You know, why does it matter? I don't see color. All lives matter. Yeah. No, 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 no. Ignoring it does nothing but fuel a flame that needs to be put out. Like, so again, just celebrating it. We celebrate their Haitian roots, we celebrate their blackness their connection to their first families. We talked about that at the beginning where I just feel this heaviness. 
through the adoption process, I got to know their moms, which I did not expect. And that was a deal. That's a, that's a whole different podcast girls. But, um, (laughs) so my youngest son, Mackie says, mom, you're the second best mom I've ever had. And I say, yes, thank you, honey. That's so sweet. That's the best thing you could ever say to me. We leave room for them to be an adoptee and be a Haitian and love their first families. And I will, and we, um, I've been back to visit their families too. And again, I just feel like the system failed them. The system failed our family, like altogether, the the kids, it's just, we have this thing that we think will help, but it just kind of is a surface solution. And it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that their moms are still living in poverty, you know? So anyways, and their moms love their boys. So um, anyways, um, Nelson talks to his mom probably once a month on the phone. Um, we do what we can. So anyways, yeah, it's, it's really, really awesome. We say, I love you. We um, hope to get her like a visitor's visa so she can come visit. Um, I'll take my boys back to Haiti eventually. Um, hopefully this summer, whenever COVID dies down, I just, and too often adoptive parents feel like, celebrating those things and seeking those things will somehow diminish their role as a mom. And Mm -hmm. my hope is that, that my kids will ultimately just be thankful that I allowed them to have whatever feelings they need to have. Um, I'm still stuck on that. You know, the families like that's gotta be, that might be a whole nother podcast, which we'd love to dive into that as well. (laughs) But yeah, have they, so have you known them, you know, since, ever since you adopted or did you find them later on? Kind of just like a brief thing on that. It is a huge can of worms. And so the thought of open international adoption mm-hmm. is very foreign. That is not something you hear about. No, never. And so our time, at the time we started adopting in Haiti, they were in the process of kind of like shifting laws and regulations. We got in on the last of the previous rules and regulations, but yet also benefited from the new ones. Um, That's again, a bigger story, Mm but that meant that parents were they didn't explore you know you hear in some international adoptions how there's like investigations to make sure no other family members are around to like help they don't mm-hmm. do that in Haiti it's kind of like a I don't know it was just really out of control and anyways uh they with thanks to social media anytime anybody would visit Haiti they would take pictures mm-hmm. And so as an adoptive mom, you're just so hungry to see pictures of your kids. And so I remember seeing that somebody had posted a picture of Mackie. And I just thought, oh, there's Mackie. And I had seen his mom's picture in his file. And I didn't know what that had really meant. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she had dropped him off at some point and they had her picture taken at that time. Well, there she was holding him in this picture at the orphanage. Mm. And my heart just stopped. I was like, wait, that's his mom. Mm. And so when I went down there again, 
they were able to call her and have her come visit. Mm. And the ethics around this is so beyond me. And again, just what I wrestle with day in and day out. Here's his mom. He's not a true orphan. He's an what happens in, in international adoption time and time again, and this is why you hear about countries being shut down. These are not true orphans. They're orphans of poverty. Yeah. They're orphans because their moms feel like, okay, if the orphanage can take care of them, then they will be well. And yeah, it's just mind blowing and heartbreaking. And again, when you hear about countries being shut down for adoption, you hear all the white parents be up in arms. What an injustice. This is awful. You're like, no, because crimes are being committed against these children and families every day. And it's not okay. Do you know how much international adoption costs? Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of dollars. That would be life changing Mm -hmm. to the economy, the families of Haiti. Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of dollars per family. Like, and, and there's Christian organizations pouring money into grants to help these parents. Mm. Where is that money being, that, that's misplaced. I, I just feel like a huge trader talking about it because I benefited from all of it. Mm. I benefit mm. from adoption tax credits. Ugh. Like mm. when their moms are still living in poverty. Yeah. I will never, I don't know what to even do with this. It just feels criminal. The other thing that I really, Nelson's mom worked at the orphanage. She worked there. Well, yeah. And I would say, but what about his mom? I, I asked the orphanage director, but his mom is like a part of his daily life. And she goes, he, she, she doesn't want him here. She wants him out. She gets, yeah, like that's what she told me. Oh she was like, he, she wants him gone out of this crazy place. Like she hated Haiti. She would like talk really bad about it all the time. She wants him out of here. So I just thought, okay. So again, I just told myself, okay, so this is just like in America when there's a mom who wants to place her child for adoption. Like this is all, like, this is what it is. I had no, I was completely ignorant to the power struggle, mm-hmm. the power imbalance here. It was not okay. And so um, another thing is, is I found out at the very end, it was either right at the end or right after they came home that they had to have the moms lie about different things when it came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. government and in immigration. They had to have them lie about their address and things like mm-hmm. that. I just went, what? Like, I, you know, you just, our process, it's almost comes in too, too fast process. And then, um, the other thing was, um, I don't know. You just see a lot of, you see a lot of, of because over time you start to realize that this is a business Mm -hmm. and this, this may have started as charity work by these organizations but it becomes a business and these children do get exploited and you know you see people talk about child trafficking and this and that and you just go wait a minute like what what is really happening here so with that being said the very least I could do is love those women well Mm -hmm. and the very least I can do is keep that bridge open between them and their sons 
and assure them that your sons know exactly who you are. We speak your name in my house. We have your pictures up in our house. We will come visit you. We will love you. Um, and that's the least I can do for my kids. And giving them that exposure of who they are and their culture and their, their moms and their family and having just that open connection there is something you're doing right. Because a lot of people, you know, don't get that opportunity or, you, you know, the, the birth mom might not want it or the adoptive mom would keep it more of a secret. So I think that's something you've done mm-hmm. extremely right and keeping it open and just letting them know who they are is huge. When it, we talk about identity all the time and, That'll definitely help them grow into understanding who they truly are. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It is really a complicated thing, especially the complexity of uh, adoption as a business. Um, Partially just because I see that kind of thing. Like there's a very big divide amongst adoptees about their feelings about adoption. A lot to do with how they've been raised. So for instance, I'm on just like a very general adoptee support group on Facebook. And there is a very, very strong and very strongly opinionated divide about how people feel about that. And I feel like it's really interesting, especially for Erica and I, who feel happy in our families and happy of where we are now, even to have to like acknowledge and embrace that fact is that there are tons of adoptees that have had a bad experience that can acknowledge that more fully and also are going to more angrily, you know, address that. But for us, kind of like considering we are, you know, international adoptees from Colombia, you know, that's also the kind of element of uh, what you had said as like orphans of poverty, you know, that kind of thing is a very different added layer that although Erica and I have grown up and are, you know, love our families and acknowledge that it's like, there still is just that complexity of like seeing how it's evolved and Mm -hmm. there still isn't the evolution of like addressing the root of the problem. The other thing I remember, I noticed that any mom who had placed her baby or her child at the orphanage, they were now eligible to come back weekly and get packs of food. At the time, I thought, what a beautiful gift, you know, because that's what they want you to believe. But now I look and like, again, that is so corrupt. Like, it's so icky and very icky. And the more time I spent in Haiti, the more time, the more I was able to see it over and over again. And then I saw these moms also come back to the orphanage, come to the director and say, do you have pictures of my kids? Do you have pictures of my kids? And the big hope was that they would get to see, you know, pictures of their kids that adoptive parents had sent. And the disappointment I saw when, there weren't any. And I, because of the amount of time I spent in Haiti, I even, I brought all of my kids over there for, to stay there for three weeks at the orphanage and my husband, we stayed there. It was about seven, eight months before the boys came home. We stayed there for three, three weeks. And I can't remember it was during that time or a different visit, but I stood with a biological mom watching her son leave Mm. to go to a different country 
And nobody stood with her as tears ran down her face. Oh my God. I, I know. And it was like I was being exposed to the other side. So it was all these things. So I stood with her and I rubbed her arm and I just like, when regrets, when regrets, I'm so sorry. And I just held her and she cried and cried. And I was like, something is not right here. Like, this is not okay. And then the couple just happened to say like, bon voyage or something. They said some weird, like flimsy goodbye to her. They didn't hold her. They didn't make, they didn't say like, thank you. We love you. Nothing. It was just like, a, or it was, you know, it was just, it just felt so wrong. Like something inside me was screaming. Mm-hmm. And then we had another instance where a mom came with a friend and she had this nursing baby friend, like so little, her name was Serafina. I'll never forget. And the friend knew some English and was saying, this mother has no house, no food, you know, no family, no money. And will you take her baby? And I'm noticing she's nursing. And by this time I had visited that maternity center that I shared with you guys about earlier where they empower women and, you know, give them strength and give them hope and the resources. And I was saying, you can do this. Like all of a sudden I felt like I didn't want her baby to get adopted. I could see that she loved her baby, but she had no support in the resource in the, in the United States. We have all sorts of resources for mothers. If they want to be a parent in Haiti, if you want to be a parent and have nothing, you have no options. And so she was so upset. She was crying. Um, she felt if, if you think you feel hopeless, I've seen hopeless and they didn't have room in the orphanage and they walked away with nothing. With oh nothing. So <laughs> it took way too many of instances like that for me to finally wake up. But those are things that are hard to educate. Yeah you know, the general population about because they're still stuck on this idea that they're fixing problems by just taking kids out of there. And I got to see layers deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And then specifically with my own children's families that I just, I kind of went, I'm sorry, but like, oh shit, like what is happening here? Like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. So it's so complex and so big and I will forever, I will, will be trying to navigate how to move forward with this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So yes, that's heavy. And I'm sorry to any listeners that may get triggered by any of this because it's, it's heavy. It's deep. It's, there's a lot to it. And honestly, like one of the questions that we usually kind of like end on that is more of a very, I don't know, just kind of, wrap it up in a package kind of thing. This has been kind of the whole, this whole conversation has been kind of going around our question that we typically ask saying, what is something you wish people would realize about adoption? And this is very eye opening to that. So obviously we, I don't think we obviously need to revisit that question necessarily, mm-hmm. but I guess when it goes yeah. to usually the second part of that question being like any stereotypes or phrases that you've been dealing with either when you first adopted, when you moved, Mm -hmm. like when you made that decision, any types of those things that you want to address to give a, you know, a different point of view of how people phrase things to you. 
yeah, how people phrase things. I, there are some things that are super predictable. Um, when I post a picture of my family, I can kind of count down, mm. <laughs> count down the seconds until I see your family is so beautiful. Again, on, on surface, that is a very nice compliment, but it is something that it's almost like everybody who says that I just, there's more to that statement. And, yeah. and again, it just goes hand in hand with thinking that taking pictures with black babies is serving them well, like it's, <sighs> it's doing nothing. And so when people say you have such a beautiful family, <laughs> I don't know if this sounds critical or crass, but I just want to be like, okay, but when, when people say racist things against them, then will you say, Hey, I know this beautiful boy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I don't know. There's like things like that where, I've just become so leery about people when they say your family's so beautiful or like you, I don't know, like you're so strong, Kate. I'm so strong because I adopted these black boys. No, I am. I missed out on a lot. I'm, I'm stupid. I don't know. I just feel like, like I, I failed in a lot of ways actually. So don't tell me I'm a great mom. Don't tell me I'm a hero. There's a lot of that narrative that gets thrown at adoptive parents. And then when, when things get hard or you're, you know, I've seen so many, yeah, it's just, it's hard to even know. Like, obviously I could talk about it for a long time. So there's nothing that I could think of right off the top of my head of like things I, I hear just, um, I just think a huge misconception was in my head. I just thought like, oh, if I have an interracial or transracial family, you know, people of color will think that, you know, I'm on their side or like I did a good thing for their community or whatever. That's the opposite. I mean, and nobody has said anything against. I'm just listening to other transracial adoptees. There's Mm -hmm. just a lot of you know, then you start to introduce the idea of like colonization. Like I went to a black country and took children from them and be- and had them become American, like actually, ooh, like, and then raising them in a white family, what does that do for their black identity? So I don't know. I just, I feel like every, that's my gut reaction now. when people are like, you did a great thing. Your family's so beautiful. Or, you know, you're so brave. You're so strong you know, you conquered international adoption. Nope. I, I mean, it's just so much more than that. So I, it's like, I cringe. I don't know how to even respond to people. Cause there's just not enough time ever to just <laughs> say, you know, that's a nice thought, but you know, yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm, I'm just open to being uncomfortable and learning more and more. I guess, uh, I don't know, unless we have, Erica, unless there's anything else that you want to go back to before. I don't um, think so. Um, checking in on resources. I don't know. We always just want to make sure that our listeners, mm-hmm. especially just being part of the community that we are trying to form and everything, that you have, you know, resources either that you would recommend, um, either being mm-hmm. like books or groups or uh, yeah. anything like that um, and anything that you're kind of, searching for right now that you think would be a good resource for other people. Yeah. It sounds like that you have a really great um, connection with other adoptees or, you know, you have, 
I'm assuming, is that kind of your ideal audience as other adoptees or anybody? I mean, I would say in general, like the reason that we kind of started was because out of the adoption triad, we feel like adoptees mm-hmm. are the most easily forgotten somehow. Um, yes. partially, like, kind of to go back to your whole, the comment about you have a beautiful family. It's like, people are so excited about baby pictures and like homecoming pictures and things like that. But then we grow up, we're adults that still have to face the trauma that we experience. Like, like you said, like your kids were a little older, obviously than especially a lot older than us than when we were adopted. But I mean, there still is that three month period for us as infants that was held holds trauma now. So with those kinds of things, we just are trying to create the voice of especially adult adoptees in the aftermath um, yeah. to then make the conversation clearer for, especially for adoptive parents who are like taking this on and just making us more known as to this mm-hmm. isn't just momentary while the adoption is happening. This is a lifelong. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's beautiful. What has been a huge resource for me, but I know has been a really great resource for adoptees and birth parents is transracial adoption and transracial adoption perspectives. There are two Facebook groups where, where the adoptee voice is the, the power, the, the, the re- most respected voice. And I've just seen a lot of adoptees really be able to unpack some powerful Mm -hmm. things there and find tremendous solidarity. And they allow adoptive parents in that space, but it it is used with great caution. And there are some very strict expectations and boundaries that we must have Mm -hmm. and white people who hold power are not used to being restricted that way. So it's been a great exercise for me over the years. And now it's really come to form like who I am as a mom. And so I'm, I, I, every interview, every talk I give, I shout out those two groups um, Mm -hmm. because they've been so vulnerable and um, I've gotten to be, Um, kind of an eye on their healing and their processing of their own experiences. And it's taught me so much and I'm a better mom for being in those groups. Um, So transracial adoption, transracial adoption perspective uh, perspectives. There's also a group called culturally fluent families, which is also just a really great woke community where I just feel like, it's a healthy place to be and learn and um, also serve others and trying, trying to help them um, through their, through their parenting experiences or, you know, and just be a culturally fluent family. And so those are three Facebook communities I would say. And that's cool. Gosh. Yeah. And there's just so many books right now. Um, specifically with adoption. I just think it's really crucial that a parent, that parents realize like, Parent, there's another group, Parenting with Connection, where um, it's more of a just parenting um, with ch- kind of child-centered and, I don't know, just being a mindful mindful parent and, um, I don't know, things like that. And, and especially in adoption, when you are dealing with um, 
any just all types of trauma it's really important to be sensitive to that and knowledgeable about that so yeah and I guess we have one more question from our listeners um have you sought out any type of mentor or someone your kids can look up to yeah it's a great question um something you know again I have no excuses with COVID though like Mm -hmm. when we were up in rural Minnesota um we I I did what I could um you know out of the doctor lineup there was one black doctor I was like well we're gonna connect with Mm -hmm. him and his family was of course one of the only families so um we would get we, I started to build a friendship with her right before we moved. And now they've moved out of the area as well. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. But um, <laughs> she had, it was hard, but um, for them as well. But um, mentors for my kids. Yeah, we just haven't, um, as far as people who look just like them, we're, we're in work of establishing that. Mm-hmm. We have um, Nelson's teacher, who's a black male in the area, who... I just, I listened to him and I thought, okay, beyond this, I hope that we can foster a relationship with him. Um, and then we also have neighbors who, you know, a very diverse neighborhood. So I just think, okay, I feel like I have the tools here, like, and we just need to foster those relationships now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a process. So I just, I can't name anybody specific off the top of my head besides like their, their teachers and and people at their school that can serve as mirrors, but it's just a matter of time. Like we're seeking, (laughs) we're seeking. Yeah. You're in the right direction, kind of right steps. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Well, I think that basically sums up all of our questions and everything. This has been very informative, but we do always want to ask, like, if you have any questions for us or if there's any, I guess, final thoughts for us that you'd want to share or or ask, obviously. Um, I think we talked about so much and I just appreciate what you guys are doing with offering your platform for a variety of voices and recognizing the adoption triad. And it's just there's so much that we think we know that we have no idea and that perspective shift is huge. So thank you for bringing that to surface. I don't, it's just great. One step at a time. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> we appreciate you right. so much. And for you just being You're very welcome. open and vulnerable and kind of giving your side of a hard situation that you have continued and will continue to, educate everyone and yourself on too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Absolutely. Well, th- say hi to the fam for us. Um, we hope in future non COVID world, we can host <laughs> some events and stuff. So we would love to, you know, meet everybody and uh, have you guys be kind of part of our community in the future. Absolutely. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate. Have a good rest of your day and stay safe and well. Bye, you guys. Bye. You too. Bye. Wow. Holy. Whoa. I'm. That was so different than I expected that conversation to be. 100%. For listeners like Erica and I, just for to get to know our process, we, um, we ordinarily, or we always 
start with questions um, that we give to our uh, interviewees ahead of time so we can kind of guide the conversation. And to be completely honest, this went in a very different direction than I anticipated because there was so, so much that was not in the article, obviously, that we just knew initially about her that was just about the move, which was very minimal in comparison in our conversation kind of as it came out. Like, that was so eye-opening. And Yeah. And a lot of times throughout the whole interview, like, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say because... Those are things like, as we've mentioned many times, like adoption is not all rainbows and it's not a cookie cutter. It's not the same for everybody, but yeah, it's not all rainbows and smiles and rainbows and smiles. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's difficult and every story is so different. And being an international adoption, we know there are so many different, you know, situations and stories and, regulations and rules and things like that but to have the birth mothers lie to have like they're almost brainwashed to do something they don't want to do and it's just heartbreaking and I could just feel her pain you know for what she's done but her still connecting and giving back you know exactly it's like you can't you can't go back and fix anything or change anything. And so I think, I mean, I can imagine that's the hardest thing to just come to terms with is that you can't change what happened. And it's, I don't even know. It was just, that was just so, I had chills like the whole time, every time she would say something. And obviously like our audience can't see us, but we're on a video chat as we do this. And I was just, but jaw was dropped like every five minutes, just like with what she was saying. Um, a couple things that I jotted down, like obviously we talked about the complexity of like adoption as a business. And that is something that I have witnessed people talk about, but it's all been from the adoptee standpoint out of anger and without really much to say about it, besides the fact that they're mad and that they just think that adoption is unethical a hundred percent, which I have a hard time with, again, like I said before, because you and I are happy and we have had a positive life for the most part, but it is, it's so much more than just saying it's unethical. There's so much to unpack there. And I think it, every, like you said, it's every story is different. It's not all the same for everybody. Some people are carrying the pain just from that particular subject of the fact that they believe that adoption is strictly a business. And I guess I would kind of argue the point that because I can't get fully on board with that phrase, and I mean, that could change over time. I would say the way that it is done currently with adoption has some, you know, things to fix, obviously it's, it's not a one and done thing where it's like, this is unethical, put a bad, you know, stamp on it and it's over, you know, there's a lot more to be said about it and a lot more conversation that needs to be had. But it it was definitely, it was crazy seeing this also from like the uh, adoptee parent standpoint. Mm -hmm. And with Columbia, they've also changed their rules. Remember I told you when I went back to visit they don't do international adoption anymore. And I wondered if it's, it's more something with that. 
yeah, it's probably more similar than we even um, like knew because they're trying to keep their families and the children with their biological family. And it's a lot of resources lacking, which we know, but again, no one's doing anything about it. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, Another thing I wanted to touch on just for our kind of reflection on her um, point of view is just when she was talking about her kids blending in that first moment at the George Floyd Memorial, Mm -hmm. I like that just like I just it triggered a thought for me because you and I are obviously, you know, blended enough, but I remember having an experience when I went to Spain when I was in high school And I was dyeing my hair darker at that time. So it was closer to your color. And obviously I have pretty wild curls. So it's like, whatever. And with my complexion and such, like, as we know from the 23andMe, I have a lot of European in me. So when I was in Spain, I've never blended in like that. Mm -hmm. Just being there. And I can imagine like your experience in Colombia was probably something very similar. Yeah. Like I didn't, I blent with them in my parents and the people we were with stuck out as white people and to me just like what you said you you feel you know you don't feel that much of a difference here especially Mm -hmm. where we grew up you know we also were very lucky to be around very various um races and you know ethnicities so that I think well you You, yeah I I didn't necessarily but obviously like you and I are you know, white or white passing or whatever you want to call it at this point, which that's another topic for another day, just because there's a lot to talk about there as far as like being Colombian, but not quote unquote looking Colombian, how people expect us to look. That's a whole different conversation. Don't get me started. I don't know what to Spanish and it's okay. Like, I know. <laughs> it's bueno, Erica, actually. Oh my God. That like really drives me nuts. Like, oh, you you don't have to speak Spanish no okay well you're not really Colombian like get out of here like oh my god to swear and cuss at you in Spanish if you really want me to that's mad (laughs) (laughs) but I just loved how she embraces everything how she said Black Lives Matter movement made her realize that the move was not only necessary, but urgent for her. Yeah. I think there was just, there was a lot to that conversation. And I think she was, I I totally agree that she did this at the right time, especially because her kids are 11 and nine. Now Mm -hmm. they're about to get into that point of getting to know themselves and her mentioning, like, you don't, you're raised as a certain way. Like I can imagine these kids, for instance, like even my experience going to college from Northfield, Minnesota being, you know, predominantly white, Going to school in St. Paul in Midway was a huge change. And I can imagine being, you know, of those kids' um, perspective, like growing up black in a white family, they could potentially go off to a school that's predominantly black. Like, and I can't, I didn't even, I've never thought about that shift being, or that having to be something that they would then learn, I guess, like. And that is, that I think would be, that's when they would probably have a lot of resentment later on in life for the fact, you know, for just every way that they grow, that they grew up being in a white family and having to grow up white, basically. So, 
that's what there's just all there's so many thoughts like I wanted to scream I wanted to cry I wanted to I wanted to hug her like yes. I wanted to let her know like as much as she said you know she's not a hero like I I completely hear that side of the story but what she's doing to change her views and things like that you know she's she's doing okay you know like yeah I mean it's never gonna be perfect obviously like she it doesn't service her to live with regret obviously it never does with anybody but it's all about the next steps going forward and figuring out what's best for your family and best for these kids and I mean it's it's also going to be a huge service to their white siblings to be learning this now like that's a huge thing too is not having not growing up being set in a, or not having to like worry about that you know when they're back in their town it's like I mean then they would have more to worry about with their siblings probably later on in life but it's like now it's like they need to see it for themselves mm-hmm. feel it for themselves people need to be ready to do the work if they're gonna step into mm-hmm. this and be ready to face that because it's not easy mm-hmm and just, I'm so appreciative that she just spoke the raw truth. I mean, it's it was so real and raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot harder than just a beautiful family picture. Well, that and the fact that we didn't even have to start going into like the question of the white saver complex. It was like, that was addressed first. And then it was like, so let's talk about it more, I guess, because that clearly is exactly where this is all coming from is the guilt that she has with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so glad that she has acknowledged that because that would be a huge disservice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening again. Um, Another great interview uh, in the book. So we are so happy to be sharing this kind of information. And again, just like continuing to open up the conversation about adoption and making it more mainstream. As always, like our Instagram, Facebook, comment with questions, subscribe to our podcast. Um, We're just so thankful and, you know, we're just excited to continue to just bring more interviews and more personal conversations. We have exciting news coming next month. So keep an eye on our website and Facebook and Instagram pages. And um, just thank you for that support. Until next time. Later.